Staying at Home, episode number 10. Hi, Andy. How are you doing today? I'm really well. Thank you, Simon. How are you? I'm excellent. I'm very, very excited for this super spectacular occasion to record a whole podcast episode with you. It has exactly been two years in this day when we first and last time saw us in Le Mans. Right before the race, I jumped up to you and asked you if you could take a selfie <laughs> because the the car car fan I am and um, the time I've now spent with Nikki team working with his media content and so on. I just had to say hi to you and it's just the picture popped out on my Facebook stream in the morning and I found it a little bit amusing that exactly two years after the picture was taken, you and I are going to have a conversation with each other. It's nice to reconnect, uh, particularly as when we think about how uh, how much the world has changed in those uh, in those past two years. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, especially since, you know, we just had the virtual Le Mans uh, last weekend, which congratulations, Esther Martin made P2. Yes. Uh, in, in this, in this uh, virtual, uh, virtual race. And that just shows how, how different things are this year. But for people who don't know who Dr. Andy Palmer is, how would you introduce yourself to someone? Oh, I'm just uh, a car guy. Uh, who spent sort of nearly 41 years of his life basically working in the car business. That's that's uh, quite some time. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about change. I think 40 years. Exactly. Well, I started early because I left, I left school when I was 15 years old and I started my apprenticeship when I was 16 years old. So uh, I started early um, and uh, yeah, 40 years came up last uh, September. So as we approach this September, it'll be 41. That's quite some time. Which, which was the first car brand that you started working for? Well, I started working, my apprenticeship was, was at a company called Automotive Products or AP, which you might know from uh, manufacturing of racing clutches and racing brakes. Um, I, I, I spent time in all of their divisions in Leamington Spa, but I eventually ended up in the advanced engineering department, um, basically working on <clears throat> what was then the early renditions of twin wet clutches. So semi-automatic transmissions, or automatic transmissions, but with twin wet clutch in this case. Um, and I was there for seven years before I, I wanted to spread my wings. And at night school, I did a, a degree in management. Uh, and then I moved to my first car brand, which was Austin Rover or um, Austin Rover Morris or British Leyland or BL or one of its reincarnations. Um, and um, there, there I was working on a whole host of vehicles, but I, I, I ended my career at, uh, at what was then Rover Group uh, as chief engineer for uh, transmissions. And, and that was basically both the uh, engineering, design and engineering of the transmissions, but also the manufacturing of those transmissions. Um, through um, my master's degree in engineering that I did during that period of time, um, and through work, I, I, I became associated with Honda and was fascinated by the way the Japanese were shaking up the, the global car business. I read a book called The Machine That Changed the World, and decided I had to go and work for the Japanese to find out why they were so good at what they were good at. I had the opportunity to join Nissan, and I spent the next 23 years uh, at Nissan, the first 10 years uh, eventually heading up uh, engineering 
for Nissan in Europe. And then uh, after the takeover, basically, of, of with uh, Renault taking over Nissan, I was invited by Carlos Ghosn to, to go to Japan, go and live in Japan. And I spent 13 years, firstly, taking care of Nissan's light commercial vehicle business, then taking care of um, all, all of its planning and sales and marketing, and then finally um, basically became uh, one of the um, chief operating officers of, of the business. Before uh, what is now nearly six years ago, getting a call from Aston Martin, being offered the chief, chief executive uh, role, deciding it was a chance to come back to the UK and um, you know, I, I hoped uh, save an ailing company um, and use all the skills that I'd learned. Uh, came back, did six years at um, Aston Martin, and um, left three weeks ago. Um, so for the for the uh, for the first time in my career, uh, I'm sitting here in the garden uh, and wondering what to do next. Well, that's maybe much needed time to to breathe and to focus on the next 41 years of your career. <laughs> maybe not 41. <laughs> But for sure, some more. I think you have been involved in so many. Yeah, I think it's not an overstatement to say legendary car. I mean, every every car person knows and loves the Nissan GTR, mm -hmm. um, which which you know still today is somewhat the benchmark for for uh, a proper sports car, and then going to Aston Martin, you basically you with your team have somewhat reinvented the brand for the the new uh the new uh century i think it, the the plan the strategy even was called the second century plan if i'm correct that's correct absolutely yes and it was about re renewing the portfolio of um sports cars and gt cars and then expanding the portfolio firstly firstly with an suv which is the dbx Uh, and then with the mid-engine range of cars, uh, and then ultimately with the Lagondas. Um, so uh, yeah, it was about uh, re reinventing the brand. And, and I'm, a, I'm a you know I'm a great believer that that, that basically first and foremost you need great product, uh, and, and um, you know that's what I've tried to do throughout my career is is basically either engineer or plan uh, or execute or all three. Um, in a way that produces the best possible products possible and and I've, i'm you know honored to to be associated with what i consider to be a a good a good a good many really really good cars that i'm really really proud of yeah yeah i think um especially with with a brand like aston martin it's it is so difficult to really change things without upsetting the loyal fan base that this brand has because their designs are truly classic i remember when, when i saw the new vantage for the first time it really took me a good hour to i don't know how this process is called but to adjust the new design and getting used to okay that is the new vantage because we have seen the old design for so long yeah but the more you look at it and the more it looks like a modern sculpture the more it looks like an Aston martin i i can't really explain this in better words than this but there was so much that could have gone wrong but it didn't and the result was excellent how do you approach reinventing an icon i i think um 
anything that has a history, you have to be respectful of the history. You have to know your history. And I think as a product planner, um, you have to understand that history. And if, if, you know, for example, if I compared the first Qashqai with the second Qashqai, everybody was very nervous about the replacement because, you know, Qashqai was one of the most profitable cars of Nissan and we didn't want to mess it up. Um, the same is true of an icon like like DB11 replacing DB9 or old Vantage being replaced by new Vantage. Uh, in the case of in the case of Aston, I think what you have to you have to appreciate is um, that the way that the cars are designed um, it basically conforms with the golden ratio, that sort of two thirds one third rule um, that 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 comes from sort of Leonardo da Vinci principles, uh, and, and basically you see so often in nature. So in reflecting the design of the Vantage, fundamentally, if you put a, if you put a, um, a, a sheet over the top of the car so you can't see the sculpture, what you will see is, is the proportions, and those proportions are, 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 are key. Um, so, so then, yes, I think, I think it's, I, I think it's, obligatory that when you move on in history you have to you have to take a brave pill and you have to honor history but not not basically be a slave to it and and i hope that what what the team did with with vantage um or indeed with Kashkai as an example was basically to move on i i often talked about when i was at um at aston i often talked about um that the the founders of the company, you know, Lionel Martin, for example, was not a guy that was looking backwards. He was a guy that was looking forwards. And if you want to respect his history and his input into the cars, then then you, as as the the leader of the company for the for the nearly six years that I was the leader of the company, your role is is basically to respect the history, but also move the brand forward. And hopefully, that's what um, that's what DB11, that's what Vantage, that's and, and in particular, I think what DBX and Valkyrie does is move the brand forward. I hope. I genuinely hope that that's my legacy. And I think it's such an interesting thing that all sports car, all high performance car manufacturers are now building SUVs. And, you know, that's like to think that there at someday would be a Lamborghini, a Ferrari or an Aston Martin SUV. If you would have told that to someone like, let's say 10, 15 years ago, they probably would have said that's a crazy thing to say. And now these products are selling more than the traditional portfolio. Why, why are people so obsessed with SUVs and why Is it necessary for exotic car manufacturers to take shares of these markets? You know, I don't think anybody anywhere ever defined a Ferrari or a Lamborghini as, as a basically being the shape that we traditionally think. And even if you look over history at the history of, let's take Ferrari, the, the style of their car um, ha has evolved. But my my point is that if you look at your customers and the potential customers that can afford a car at, let's say, $200,000, uh, um, they, they split into groups. They split into uh, what, what a product planner um, would, would call clusters. And each cluster of customer has slightly different needs. 
and and very clearly around the world. But I would I would highlight in particular emerging markets like China. Um, those emerging needs were people that were looking for the allure of a brand, um, looking looking to be able to show and appreciate that they 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 understood they understand luxury uh that they appreciate mm-hmm. the art of a ferrari or a uh, an aston or a lamborghini they appreciate why it's expensive but they want to express it in a way that they want to use their vehicles and there's a a, a fairly significant cluster as we can now see that basically wanted wanted the 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 brand of Lamborghini or Aston, but wanted it in a body form that was was basically what we would typically call an SUV, a, a vehicle with a higher hip point, a higher seating position, but didn't want to sacrifice ride and handling, didn't want to sacrifice performance. Um, and I think for the same reason you see an emerging luxury segment also, to some extent, says you know why people are moving over to, towards electric cars. That there wasn't anything that said I'm I'm you know for most people that I'm dedicated to to being a, a gasoline guy or a diesel guy. Basically, for most people, the engine is about getting from you know from 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 A to B, and the electric gives you the advantage of of silence and enormous amounts of torque. Likewise, what you're doing with the luxury SUVs is you're giving the individual the brand. You're giving them the hand built. Um, you're giving them the the independent specification. But what you're doing is you're dressing it up in a in a in a different body form, and the same is true of a a, a rear mid engined as opposed to a front mid engined as opposed to an SUV or as opposed to a sedan. All you're doing is you're answering the the question of why people might consider a brand. Like Lamborghini, like Aston, like Ferrari, but you're you're delivering it in different clothes. Yeah, I think this is very very interesting because you know when when you look into the forums of like the racing community and you know people see that products like the DBX are launched, I think the first reaction of just the normal guy, I'm not talking about the classic customer for the brand, but more like the fan base that dreams one day of owning a car like this even more. I think it it takes for for us as the fans of these brands time to realize that you know an aston as you said doesn't necessarily only come in the shape of a db11 or vantage and so on that what people are buying into is the basically the lifestyle and what the brand represents to them but uh, best example is our friend Nikki that just got his uh, newborn son and now uh, needs to somehow uh, fit a child seat into the car <laughs> yes exactly well there you go that's that's part of that lifestyle part of that cluster <laughs> what what i would say is remember that for all of the all of these um exotic brands uh, they all need to make business and None of them have stopped making classical sports cars. You can still buy a um, Lamborghini Aventador. You can still buy, um, um, you know, an Aston Martin DB11. Um, but but ho- hopefully the, the business overall is 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 much safer as a result of having um, a wider portfolio. So if you're not 
at a point in your lifestyle, a lifetime where you you need an SUV, then of course those sports cars are still available. But but for those people that have kids, for example, but still want to enjoy the allure of the brand, then all you're doing is offering different choices. And I think you know I, I'm not going to comment on how a DBX drives because that's um, that's not in the open yet. But but obviously if you go and drive a, a Lamborghini Urus. Uh, the, yep. the the ride and handling of that car is spectacular. I mean, you get a lot of the exhilaration that you get out of um out of an Aventador, but you get it in the Urus, but you get it with a lot more space. Now, obviously, there are some compromises, but but I would say it's an exhilarating car to drive, and and I, I think that's the way to look at these cars. Um, that that basically they're delivering they're delivering the promise of the brand, but they're, they're delivering it in a different skin for a different customer. Or at least a different customer at a different stage of their life. Yeah, that's that's absolutely fascinating. But I would like to uh, quickly sh make a small shift and um, jump into your your life and work as a CEO. How can can one imagine a day in the life of a car company CEO? What is what does a typical day look like? Um, whether you're a CEO or a COO, I'll, I'll quote either because they're much the same, is that the um, clearly days are busy. Um, people often talk to me about, uh, don't you need to sort out your uh, your life, uh, work-life balance? And I always reply by saying, you know what, when your job is your hobby, um, then then basically you don't you don't need to balance it because it's naturally imbalanced. But but if you talk to me uh, about mine, I mean, I, I traveled a lot. So quite often found myself on airplanes um, during the course of any day. If I was in the office, then I'd, I'd probably be at my desk. I tended to get to my desk around about 8.30, but um, would have probably been on the telephone since around 7.30 in the morning. Uh, and, and I typically ended my day in an office at around about 8, 8.30 in the evening. Um, One of the things that I tried to habitually do was walk the Gemba um, on a Friday afternoon, and that, that's true of whether I was at uh, Aston or whether I was at, at Nissan, walk around and see what's going on and talk to people. Um, that, that takes me back to my apprentice days where if you really want to know what's going on and you don't want it filtered by uh, the organization, it's better to go and talk to people at the Gemba. Um, And I would say that every my, my, my day was typically divided into half-hour slots, um, typically looking at all the different functions. Um, the joy of, of being an, of, of being a chief executive is that you're not not bound by one function. So I could go from one meeting talking about the I don't know the design of a of a new car, another meeting talking about a, a, an engineering problems with a chassis component. All the way to a, a new marketing and brand campaign. Um, so, so the, the, the interesting part of being a chief exec is, is or, or chief operating officer is the scope of what you deal with, um, and I think that's that's what makes it interesting. Um, and as I say, basically, to me, um, it, 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 it's a role. The industry is is a role that I love and is is part of me and is as much my hobby as it is my livelihood. 
Yeah, it's. I think it's it's so important um, when when you do a job that takes a lot of your time and energy that you, for sure, enjoy at least <laughs> the industry you're in. And I think a lot of people that are just starting out as apprentices and um, you know just are getting used to the en environment of of this workplace. It's it's so refreshing to hear that you didn't start initially with like Ivy League uh, education from the beginning and then went into the workspace, but because you, you basically went through all levels that a career possibly can have. And I think this is so exciting for a lot of people that might be hearing this to hear because we all have big dreams and we all have these one day I wish I could be this and that thoughts. And you are basically the living proof of of that idea. I certainly wasn't Ivy League. It was probably more like nettle leave. Um, so I, I <laughs> actually I went to school um, very actually very close to, um, um, to to Gaydon, which is the head office of Aston. I went to school in a place called Kyneton, uh, which was um, that's about ten miles, I suppose, next village more or less to Gaydon, um, and, and actually didn't like school much. Um, but I did know at the age of 14, I wanted to be an, uh, an automotive engineer. And it seemed to me the most expedient way of doing that was to, to leave school as quickly as possible. Um, and, uh, get, a, get an apprenticeship, which is, which is what I did. There's no great secret to, um, I, I don't think there's any great secret to, to living your dream if you want. Um, I, I knew from the age of 20 that I wanted to be a chief executive of a car company. Um, I, I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm not a super genius. I've not got a, uh, a huge IQ or anything like that. I just worked very hard and applied myself across my life. I, I went out and got the qualifications that I needed mostly in my spare time. Um, and I worked really hard and diligently at everything that I did, um, and tried to understand from the grassroots how, how it worked. And over the period of my career, I, I, I worked as an engineer on every part in a car. Um, I worked in sales. I worked in marketing. I, I worked obviously as a chief exec, um, with finance. Um, I, I, I worked with designers very closely. So eventually got to understand at a very granular level each discipline within the car company and and that allowed me to appreciate what they did and i think uh, allowed me to get the most out of the people it helps for sure to know every bit and bolt of the product that you make <laughs> um talking about things that you enjoyed 24 hours of le mans just uh, had their first virtual race and one thing is for sure the racing industry is definitely in a very let's say, interesting phase at the moment with a lot of manufacturers leaving. Um, some Audi just left the DTM, surprisingly, and Porsche pulled out of IMSA, which, you know, is not rare, but it's for sure is recognized by the fans. Yeah. Um, do you think racing for a car manufacturer, and it doesn't necessarily have to be a high-end luxury brand like Aston Martin and... Um, the other ones do you think racing 
is still relevant in 2020 and beyond that? Or is it something that is basically a dying breed? It's a really good question because obviously when you're in an environment as we are now with, with COVID-19, then generally speaking, as you're forced to cut costs, usually the first thing that gets cut is your marketing budget and, and therefore within that, the, the racing budget. But but if we talk about a more normalized um, perspective and you know, I, I obviously um, led racing uh, at, at Nissan and uh, at Aston, but I think I think it depends upon how you choose to look at racing. So, if you look at racing through the eyes of a marketeer, then what you're looking at is 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 sponsorship, uh, putting putting your logo on the side of the car, um, and therefore it. it it probably has a relatively short shelf life because it it probably has a job to do in terms of lifting the appreciation of a of a brand over a relatively short period of time. So I, I would say in, in in that instance, you're probably using you're using um, racing as a mobile billboard to send a message around your brand and probably let's see the you know for for example in formula one it may be the glamour around the brand or it may be that you're you're trying to assert your yourself in a in a particular segment and differentiate yourself from from somebody else um by reflecting the glory of formula one or the glory of le mans um i tended to shy away from that perspective because the other the other perspective is that you use racing to explore the boundaries of engineering and conventional thinking. Um, and let let me give you the example at, at, at Nissan where where we use Le Mans to really push the imagination. So so for example, in the first instance with the uh, Delta Wing uh, product. Basically, um, to a, a vehicle that was a narrow front end and a wide rear end, uh, that became the Zod, uh, which was basically, um, you know, if you think about it now, quite quite forward thinking in the idea that you go racing with an electric car. And I think I think I'm right in saying that the Zod is is still the only car that's done a full uh, a full electric lap in a Le Mans race. Um, and then you know. You can you can you can smile at the at the the, the next time that Nissan went to uh, Le Mans, but basically went with a front-engined car, uh, and there it was trying to 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 think about how you might improve the breed of GTR. Um, and I would have liked to see Nissan compete in its in its three seasons that it was due to, to due to compete, but it was abandoned after the first season. Um, but but what 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 was what was happening there was basically using using racing to experiment with technologies with advancement of engineering, which would eventually run down to to uh, the the, uh, the the consumer products. And likewise at uh, at Aston, very clearly the um, the the GT. Threes and the GT4s and the GTE at Le Mans 
is is all based around a, a vantage tub. So again, you're 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 making the breed better. You're taking learnings from 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 racing, um, and you're you're carrying them back to the road car. And I I, I think racing very much still has relevance to, to today as it did way back in the you know the the, the 1900s um, i think it still has has relevance for advancing the breed yeah and to see how racing fans are so dedicated that uh, even no matter if it's raining in silverstone or in le mans or how how far they have to travel just to get close to their their dream cars and their dream brands yep. i i think this is something maybe some some marketing executives sometimes forget i heard last week that an audi executive raised the questions and he was um, apparently in charge of the marketing like why do we still race this is so out of time and uh you know it's a waste of money kind of statement and i think that's really interesting to to see brands with with such loyal fan bases and you know like no one not many people can afford a car like an r8 or um, an r6 or so mm -hmm. but everyone somewhat can put an s-line badge on their a3 or a1 and f you know see themselves maybe upgrading through the product palette one day yeah and i think that's 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 really comparing long and short term isn't it uh, i mean yeah i'm i'm a great believer that um that that a car company should mo should should also um um market itself to kids now look there's there's no there's no fast return in basically uh creating cars which a kid will dream about but what you are doing you're doing two things one you're you're creating a customer of the future albeit an awful long time in the future but what you're also doing is 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 <laughs> essentially the, the kids become thought leaders in the family that's true also of the motorsports fans they become the the the, the thought leaders in their community and i can you know pound to a penny say that many people that are buying the car will will go and talk to bob bob you know being a big motorsport fan they talk to him because they think that he has some knowledge of cars and then mm -hmm. then it's not bob that's necessarily buying the r8 or whatever it's it's somebody else but they're they're looking to that to bob as a as a, as a thought leader and and it's there where brands are built. I mean, look, Ferrari is 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 built on its Formula One brand, um, and and doesn't it do well as a result? Um, and I, you know, I think even even as we transition into a world of electric cars or or zero emission cars, I so somebody will always find a way to race them. Uh, it's it's yeah. it's inbuilt in man. Uh, and, um, you know, I, 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 as I say, I think what it does, I think it, 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 it improves the breed. Yeah. So you, you mentioned something really, really interesting, the switch to the electrification and cars becoming more and more digital, even as they are in most of our lives. Do you think s sports cars are still a thing relevant in the future also with cars becoming more autonomous being able to drive themselves and 
you know, is, is there still a space that you see in the future that we can uh, go on a nice Sunday cruise in our V8 uh, GT car? Or do you see this more as like, yeah, maybe for the next five to 10 years, but there's no alternative to complete electrification? Uh, look, I, I, I hope so. Um... If you look, uh, this is very interesting. If you look at, at the um, the U.S. market, um, one of the most interesting demands uh, from that market is a manual transmission. Now, the U.S. was the the first market to really go to um, automatic transmissions, but um, it's perceived that a, a manual transmission in your sports car um, makes it more engaging, makes it feel more like a sports car. So, I, I think it's interesting that that if you're in the market for a sports car in the future, it may well be that what you're looking for is not something that's different from your commute car. Uh, and you might be happy that, that, that uh, you know, for your commute, you can get into your, your, your bubble and ask it to take you to work, and, and, and it does all of the consumer stuff very well. But you may still want um, something to excite you um, at the weekend, and that might be the, the the position of 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 the sports car in future, or it might be that the sports car morphs itself into something like the sports SUV, so it it moves closer towards the trend, um, but but not entirely. Um, I think it's quite likely that legislation will will dictate that all cars going forward have some degrees of of active safety. Um, but let's hope, let's hope that basically there's an off button. So even if you can't in 20 years time, you can't switch the button off on the road. Let's mm -hmm. hope that there's a feature as there is, by the way, on, uh, on the, uh, Nissan GTR that once it recognizes that you're on a, on a track, then basically sw it switches all the nannies off and, and, and allows you to go at whatever speed you want. So I, I, I do believe that there is, there is, um, a place for driving enthusiasts even 50 years from now. I'm not sure whether that will be allowed on the road, but I do believe that you'll see the rise of um, facilities like thermal um, in the US where, where people basically have their, their exotic cars and their cars that they can take on the track and enjoy on the track. So um, as I say, basically, whether whether legislation and and public opinion will will allow us to drive, you know, cars like Valkyrie in the future on the road remains to be seen. But but certainly, I'm sure there will be a contingent of people that that still want to enjoy driving sports cars either on the road or on the track. Yeah, and Valkyrie is is. Uh is definitely one of the most exciting cars that I've seen in a very, very long time because it seems, even if it's um, one of the most modern, most advanced cars that are out there or about to be out there, rather, um, it's still somewhat extremely old-fashioned using a non-turbocharged big V12 engine how how 
how was it for you to hear the idea of the Valkyrie for the first time? Well, first and foremost, I'm, I'm extremely excited about Valkyrie and <clears throat> it's kind of, I hope, will be the creme de creme of my career. Um, Valkyrie as a product kind of evolved. Um, I mean, it, it started as four people um, sitting in a pub in Woburn over uh, over sausage and mash, um, basically talking about um, something you know very, very extreme um, and something that, on the one hand, I felt Aston needed. On the other hand, um, Adrian Newey, of course, I'm talking about, um, wanted to do and was supported by Christian. So there were basically four people at the table. Um, Simon Sproul, who was my CMO at the time, um, Christian Horner, Adrian Newey, myself. And, and the the concept of the car evolved from that meeting. And and, and, and as you know, Adrian is a, um, is a master of aerodynamics. So yeah. the most important point of the car was basically to have to bring Formula One aerodynamic capability unconstrained, um, basically, to the road. Now, with that in mind, obviously, you end up with with something which is the, the engine is, is free. And, you know, why put a little engine in when you can put a big engine? And why put a turbocharged engine in when you can put a – sorry, a, 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 why put a turbocharged engine in when you can put a naturally aspirated engine in and have that wonderful sound? So I, I would say that the engine evolved from the fact that there was no regulation uh, to constrain it. As long as we met the uh, emission regulations, then that, that was fine. So, um, you know, as that car gets defined, and I, I won't give you any forward information about that car, but uh, only what's in the public domain. But, but basically, what you have is a, a car which is, um, you know, the best aerodynamic car, hopefully, in the world, and, and just with a, a big engine that allows you to pursue the, the limits of the aerodynamic envelope. And um, I, I sincerely look forward to seeing the car now come to market um, in, in the not too distant future. Yeah, it seems looking at the um, data sheet of, of the uh, Valkyrie and about the design that you basically have written my letters to Santa, uh, that you read them. <laughs> no, they, were, they, they were my letters to Santa, you just copying them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's I think um, ever since the the most recent the most recent LMP1 era with these super lightweight super high performance cars like the the Porsche 919 hybrid you know the idea to see anything like this or even close on the road it's it seemed so distant and outlandish mm. almost because um You know, these things are so far ahead from a technological standpoint, how they are able to cut through the air, how they are able to go through the corners that before that you only ever thought would be possible in a Formula One car. Yeah, but you need cars like this to, to, to as I say, improve the breed. I, I give you yeah. one, of my, one of my regrets of a car that didn't get built, um, but was a concept car on my watch, was the Blade Glider. 
Um, the Blade Glider was um, was a three seater um, electric car with a with a narrow front end and a wide rear end that that mimicked, if you want, the um, the, the Z that we took to Le Mans. And it was the road going. It was as a concept. It was the road going version of that car. And I deeply regret that Nissan didn't chose not to bring that to market because that that did a number of things. Um, but the most important thing was it, it demonstrates to everybody that an electric car doesn't need to look like a three box sedan. It doesn't need a, a a square at the front for the engine, a square for the cabin, and a square for the trunk. Um, it, it can be any kind of shape because the, the chassis is is basically embodied within the battery, and it's it's flat more or less. It's like a roller skate. And and basically, um, Blade Glider was was a way of of furthering the the brand of EV, making it accessible to a a new audience, which would have been a sports car audience, but also demonstrating that with a completely different kind of chassis setup, that you can get relatively uh, well it wasn't a fabulous handling actually at a, at a relatively low cost and, and combine that with an electric motor which gives you enormous torque um, you you get an exhilarating sports car and I think these these kind of cars you know they come along every 10 years and they break the mold and they allow automotive engineering to step into a, in, into a new future. And um, you know, hopefully, hopefully, um, with cars like Qashqai, cars like Leaf, um, cars like uh, Valkyrie, that's some parts of my, my contribution contribution to bettering automotive engineering. Yeah, looking at the Blade Glider, it kind of looks a little bit like the the slingshot from Polaris. Yes. Do you think? Um, the people that create these concepts look at these small niche market vehicles and say, this should be out there in higher numbers or is they getting inspired by these little, little brands that are uh, existing for a very small group of people? Do they not have that kind of impact on the bigger brands? Um, car companies... Uh, and I, you know, myself included, tend to be a bit arrogant. Uh, we tend to look at each other rather than looking at the small guys. But occasionally, something will come along and make you rethink that. And I mean, the the best example of that is is Tesla. Um, you know, when Tesla came along, um, I don't think anybody took it seriously. Um, Nissan with the Leaf, we we were developing our own electric car. Um, but I, I'm not sure that any of us believed that, that Tesla was going to be around for a long time. And Tesla has has confounded everybody. I mean, it's now the most valuable car company in the world. And you can you can dismiss it if you want, but I think I think you know basically what what Tesla has done more than any other brand is demonstrate to the world that that electric cars are at least a part of the future uh, and could could yeah. be the future. So I think eventually, yes, um, where, 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 a, a particular, where a particular concept is successful, eventually it, it influences the rest of the industry, but the industry sometimes can be quite slow to move. Yeah, it's. I think Tesla is the greatest example because, from for me personally, I do respect what they have achieved and how they made 
electric cars a thing that is not exclusively for environmental nerds um you know that it is also something for people that appreciate performance and acceleration um i the first time i was at the international automotive show i must have been 15 or 16 years old and back then and long time before that manufacturers were saying yeah this could be an electric car and they all looked super a lot of cars had faces that only a mother could love let's say that like they weren't <laughs> particularly attractive vehicles tesla's car design is at least not for me but i do respect them for how they are able to push uh, the boundaries and you see all of the big brands mercedes uh, especially for, for me as a german obviously mercedes porsche and these are the first ones i pay attention to but that the Taycan is or Porsche is getting compared to uh, a Tesla and they're both fighting for who is the coolest and fastest electric car I think is it is definitely a sign that um, their electric cars are here to stay one way or the other I, I'm not too sure about the battery technology um, and the sustainability um of it um maybe it needs a new battery technology to be a car for for everyone well that's that's really part of the the the, the betterment of the of, of the of the technology i mean basically you yeah. if you want you can quote moore's law as an example but basically the the, the more the, the more batteries that we make the more demand that there is for electric car the more engineers that are working on that technology, the quicker that technology is going to evolve and emerge. So, uh, I mean, you know, I bought the the, the Nissan Leaf uh, to market um, must be ten years ago. The, the 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 technology of the battery that was used then is chalk and cheese compared to the the the, the technology that you would buy in an electric car today. So, so the it's it's evolving very quickly, and you know may, maybe the future is solid state or maybe some other form of of lithium ion. But um, it, it, you need you need the demands of the market to to force the technology through that Moore's curve to improve itself. Um, and what I will say about Tesla is that they've 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 been consistent right from the beginning. You know, they they only do electric cars. Um, you know, I, I would argue that Mitsubishi and Nissan launched the modern generation of electric car before Tesla, um, but they weren't. They haven't been consistent in their approach to the market. They haven't been absolutely dedicated to the to the betterment of the electric car. Whereas Tesla, from one from day one to today. You know, basically, it's a company that only believes in electric cars. It only makes electric cars, and it's 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 dedicated itself to the improvement of that technology. And consequent, consequently, it's the it's the most valuable auto auto company in existence today, even more valuable than Toyota. Yeah, which which is, if you look at the manufacturing numbers, um, it, it is absolutely unbelievable. But um, they they must have done something right to convince the market in, in that way in, in these numbers. Say, the market is never wrong. Um, so, yeah. uh, uh, but, but I mean, you know, look, people have been, have been declaring the death of Tesla for as long as I remember. 
and they're still here and they're still going strong. Competition is always good for the market. Uh, you know, we see that very, very quickly in racing and maybe a little bit slower in, in uh, the cars that you can buy for the average consumer. Um, but I'm, I'm very, very interested about what is your favorite car at the moment? Let's name me a modern car and let's name a classic car. What are your, your two, two favorites from, from these two eras? Oh, it's like asking me to, to nominate my favorite child. It's impossible. Um, <laughs> you can name a few of them. <laughs> all right. Well, in that case, um, obviously, I, I, in, in, in 1980, which was the year that I um, passed my driving test, so as a, as a 17-year-old, um, the, the car that I um, dreamt about w was basically the um, Aston Martin Vantage V8. Um, and I was fortunate enough to be able to buy a 1980 Vantage um, in 2015. So it's one of the cars that I have in my garage. And it was the first British muscle car. Um, so, so that definitely goes down as one. Um, another car is the, um, the Austin Mini. Uh, and I, I was working at Austin Rover when when the uh, emission requirements Euro Euro One uh, the requirement to uh, to fit a catalyst was coming and officially it killed the Mini. Uh, but I led a small team that would basically repackage the engine bay um, of, of the Mini and managed to fit a catalyst and managed to get it through uh, through the emissions testing. And gave the mini uh, a longer lease of life, and so uh, it's my little contribution to the history of that icon. And um, you know, I'd always, always would want to have um, a mini somewhere in my dream garage. Li likewise, um, um, a Land Rover Series One, again an icon, um, and one that I'm currently uh, involved in rebuilding. Actually, a 1950. Um, actually, it's an Australian spec, um, but 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 again, a, a great icon. Um, so those are cars that I would look look to the past and say I, I'd want those uh, in, in my garage. Um, today, a modern day car. I mean, I'm fortunate enough that I have um, a Vantage, a modern day Vantage, uh, which I own. Um, and I was able to specify with, with in a particular way with a with a racing uh, bonnet on it, and that's that indeed is um, one of my one of my favourite cars. Um, and obviously, I would uh, I, I would then if I was choosing um, if I was choosing something from a day to day basis, I have a particular affection for. Um, For the Qashqai, obviously, because of my involvement in, 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 in that vehicle. So my day-by-day -day car might be something as modest as, a, as, as, as frankly, a, a, a Qashqai. Qashqai is a very, very interesting car because, let's say, the design language is not for everyone. No. Um, it's, it's very different from a Vantage. <laughs> well, it is, and, and, but it, it fulfills a particular need. And, and it, was, yeah. it was invented at a, at a moment when um, Nissan was really, really suffering uh, with car sales in Europe. It really couldn't break into Europe. Nissan is a company that basically is centered in the, the B and C segment. 
um, and, and the bread and butter cars of cars like Sentra. Um, and at that time, the Almira, the Almira was just, just wasn't working in Europe. It was up against the uh, VW Golf. And you can argue there is no better C-segment vehicle than the VW Golf. Um, we can debate. Yeah, in, in German, we even call it the, the Golf class, like yeah, the exactly. category of car. We, exactly. we would name it the Golf class. So, so you know, looking at, at Nissan's DNA and trying to get back to what it was really, really good at, at its core was basically big SUVs like the uh, the Patrol, and and the thing mm. pattern was well let's not let's not go head to head with the Golf. Can we do something that plays to our uh, our strength of Patrol and um, Frontier and Tirano, and, and basically create this cross crossover vehicle? In the C segment, and it became Kashkai, and it was it was the first crossover in the C segment, and it was phenomenally successful. Transformed uh, um, uh, Nissan's um, uh, finances for for many years, and has you know historically been in in the top ten cars in 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 in, in all of the countries around the world. So um, that's what I like about that that car is that it, it reminds me that you can transform. A segment, uh, you know, if you think about the unmet needs of the customers, and as customers evolve, and we are in a nice evolution now, as uh, Gen Z um, customers start to buy cars, that's the moment when you can imagine a change, and you know, almost certainly the change that comes now is to do with uh, autonomous autonomous vehicles. Yeah, and the the Qashqai drives much much better than a car of a segment or of its uh, of its style should or one would expect if you haven't driven it. Um, I was very very surprised when I drove the Qashqai for the first time. Um, how solid and how comfortable and how well it performs yeah. on the road. It's it's very very surprising. There are many, there are many uh, cars that mimic and, and arguably are even better than the Qashqai now. But it was the it was the vanguard of that of that particular segment. Yeah. What What would be your third most favorite modern car? Um, well, I'm going to go with an electric car. So um, if it was if it was I suppose if it was in keeping with my career, I'd have to go for a Leaf. Um, But um, I might also go for the uh, for the Jag um, because I think that's an interesting um, incarnation of the electric car, and um, it sits well against the um, uh, the Tesla, uh, and it has you know it has basically the heritage of a Jaguar. So I don't know whether that will transform Jaguar's future or not, but I like the idea. That, that basically um, uh, Jack moves in that direction. So I'm going to pick that car. Fantastic. Um, talking about uh, next generations, what would be your advice for young people or Gen Z that are right now starting to develop their careers? What is something that you wish young Andy Palmer would have loved to know that you know today? Well, I was really lucky because I, I stumbled into something that I love. And I think the key is is basically, first and foremost, try and try and fi find something that you're going to love. 
because when you work, you 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 work for you know forty or forty five years, um, and you're you're working you know eight eight to late, um, five days a week, maybe seven days a week. Uh, you've got to love what you do. So you know for the for the the kids coming out of university or the kids coming out of school, um, you know by all means listen to the advice of your parents and your teachers, um, but also follow your heart. Because you're gonna you're gonna enjoy it much more if it's something that you love, um, and you're gonna be much better at it. It's gonna be something you can master if it's something that you love. So fo- follow 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 your passion, and then I have a very simple maxim, which is work bloody hard. Um, because somebody that works hard with a really good work ethic ethic will always succeed more than somebody that's basically um, very clever and simply working at a standard pace. That hard work will always pay. So that's what I'd say. Follow, follow your dream and work bloody hard. This is a, a strong and a very nice quotable statement. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Are you, are you reading any books now that you are finally have time to take a breath and sitting in the garden? Yeah, I look, it's one of my hobbies is, is reading. Uh, and I'm, I'm following um, two two streams of book at the moment. One is kind of my favorite, which is basically historical novels. I, I love history. And if, if a story can be based somewhere in history, uh, then, I, then I love that kind of reading. And it's something that I relax to. And the other thing is, you, as you say, basically, I've got time to reflect right now. So um, I, I've just, in fact, it's sat right in front of me. It's a book called Artists' Drawing Techniques. And, um, you know, when I, when I have those moments when I want to reflect on life, I enjoy drawing. And, um, you know, that's what I've been doing is finding things to draw and trying to improve my art capability. I'm not particularly good, but I'm, I'm, I really enjoy doing it. So I can lose myself for a couple of hours drawing something um and i usually draw faces and the book i'm reading at the moment is is sort of giving hints and tips on on how to improve um how to improve one's drawing that's that's uh definitely a beautiful hobby because i think um words do not always uh, express everything that we try to discover about ourselves and drawing or painting is definitely something that there's no what's needed to either um, create it or to enjoy it. And I think that's something I, I see it with my wife, um, you know, that a blank paper can become something inspiring or something uplifting or whatever you, you the result might might be. Um, it's, it's definitely something that people in the digital age might want to give it a, a chance because it's very, very rewarding when you, when you, uh, hop to it in, in a way. That's interesting. I used to take, I, I still, still do take pride in, in, in doing an engineering drawing. I mean, obviously the way it's done today is, is, is on CAD, but I still enjoy the form of a drawing board and, and, and therefore making the projections that you make um, manually um, and, and likewise I think with drawing there's no there's no guidelines there's no template there are no there are no lines that constrain you and um, I, I draw better actually when 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 I don't try to copy something more impressionist 
rather than than factual detail. Um, one could argue it's a bit scruffy as a drawing, but but I I, I love the the mood behind it and, and where it doesn't necessarily perfectly um, perfectly follow the the form of the thing that I was drawing. Fantastic. I'm just checking the time. We already filled up a complete hour. Time flies when you talk about things that you in, enjoy the most, <laughs> which for me is cars and cars and cars. <laughs> well, then we share the same passion. I, as I say, I'm, I'm blessed that I have a career, which is which is also my hobby. Uh, the last question before I let you let you go. What is next for you? Do you have any things that you maybe have lined up or something that you would like to do as as your next big project um the the the, the simple answer is 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 no um i don't have a um a strong plan i have a number of of ideas but um in in exiting aston um i decided to force myself to take a break um three to six months we'll see um where where i'm not forcing myself to jump at the first opportunity i want to consider the the next move very carefully because the next move i'm, I'm 57 years old this month so uh the next move could be my last move uh and i want to i want to make sure that i i do it well and i'm not yet fixated on on what i'm going to do whether i'm going to go back into a car business or or whether I'm going to venture out and do something associated with the car business. Uh, what I do know is that um, I'm pursuing now very hard my charity, which is called the Palmer Foundation. And this is basically a charity which takes disadvantaged youngsters and uh, basically creates an apprenticeship opportunity for them. So obviously reflecting my own career. Uh, and um, so I'm working on 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 the funding of that and the execution of of that strategy, and hopefully over the next few weeks and months, with a little bit more time that I have, I can start properly putting that foundation in place. Um, and I'm also building a tool room, um, basically at my house. Um, tool room, essentially very similar to the one that I learned my trade. So with milling machines and um, and 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 lathes and things that you would recognize as old school, but also having digital printers. Uh, and, and the intention there is that I can allow, I can go back to what I consider myself first and foremost to be, which is a very practical, uh, very practical engineer. Uh, and I can create stuff. And the, the first things, the things that I'm passionate about, obviously things like gearboxes. So my, my, my first job is to create a, a clock for the, uh, for, for the building. Um, and, and so, yeah, I've got plenty of things that I'm thinking about, but nothing concrete as yet. Well, we can all be very excited to see uh, what's next for you. And I for sure will uh, definitely the first one to uh, be uh, reading the news very excited because uh, the time that I had with um, Aston Martin as a little content creator in uh, some of the races that Aston uh, was competing. The, the brand grew very close to me and, you know, following you for uh, during basically every product launch, um, watching the streams on Facebook and so on. Uh, I, I witnessed myself that wherever Andy Palmer goes, great ideas come out one way or the other and uh, I'm definitely excited to see 
what will be the next big uh, Halo project of projects of you or whatever will be out there. I'm sure it's gonna be super exciting. And um, yeah, I wish you all the best. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me on this um, podcast. And I hope to um, see um, and hear much more of you and your foundation, particularly in the near future. Simon, it's a pleasure as always. Take care, stay safe. Thank you so much. Thank mm-hmm. you.